Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Sometimes with our money, we like to get a little bit more hands-on and a bit handsy with our money and our super because we think if we get a little bit more active, we might get a better outcome. And because it feels like we're doing something, the outcome will be better. One of the things we're going to talk about today is this whole, do I move my money into a self-managed super fund so I can quote unquote manage it better? Or do I just keep with what I've got and focus on shoveling money? And we'll have a bit of a chat about this whole credit card thing. I don't know if there's been more stuff online lately, but we get these waves of credit card questions and comments. We're going to talk about it, but we can't do today's episode without the help of Sphere Home Loans. The biggest myth out there in Moneyland is that you need to get a mortgage broker in the same suburb as where you live or the suburb you're going to buy in. That's not the case. The team at Sphere can help you wherever you are in Australia. They've got specialists for first home buyers, for investment property people, refinances, all the things. So just search Sphere Home Loans or click the link in the show notes and they'll be able to help wherever you are. Well, my name is Glenn James and today we are joined by John Pigeon, host of the My Millennial Property Podcast and Jess Brady. Let's get into it. Radio, welcome back, John and Jess. Jess, you were on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. Just give everyone a 101, who you are, what you do, all that stuff. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me back. Uh, I am a licensed and qualified financial advisor, but I started an online 10-week money program called The Greenhouse to help loads more people access all of the info from a trusted financial advisor to get their financial world sorted and hopefully, Glenn, become financially free. Love that. And John, it wouldn't be fair if we didn't say what you do. <laughs> Thank you, Glenn. Yeah, look, as you said, host modeling a property. Love that show. Take a listen <laughs> if you need. It's a good podcast. You just had to be there. You did. And it, it will continue to be, even in your absence. Love it. So John hosts the My Millennial Property Podcast. He's a buyer's advocate in Visage Property. He does property coaching. We might talk about his online course a little bit later in the program, but... Are you guys ready to get into some wild money time sexy questions? Let's do it. Mihalo, if I've pronounced your name correctly. I'm thinking about doing a self-managed super fund with stake and just splitting it 50-50 between VAS and VU, V-O-O, ETFs. Any thoughts? Is this more profitable in the long run or not worth doing due to the yearly fees of $1,312 or should I stick with ART? except I'm unsure if maybe I should just move over to their more aggressive scheme. Any thoughts or help wanting to set and forget where I just auto-invest and reinvest? Jess, I might give that one to you because I would imagine you've talked about this kind of stuff uh, in your current and past life. I mean, the fact that the end of the question talks about setting and forgetting 
automatically says to me that self-managed super funds is probably not where you want to be. Self-managed super funds is one that you have to self-manage and you are the trustee and you've got a whole heap of obligations and you can get in a lot of trouble if you don't adhere to them. And so set and forget and self-managed super fund to me do not go well together. Uh, I also think based on the very limited example that they gave, so much cost for far too little complexity in terms of what you're looking to achieve. Like I think there's much easier ways for you to get what you're looking for in a much simpler sort of uh, setup with less costs and less responsibility and obligations from a trustee perspective. Mm. Yeah, because like self-managed super fund, there is nothing set and forget about it. Like you are creating a separate company that is the trustee company. You have trustee responsibilities, you have more paperwork in your life. And what I probably would say, and it's probably more why I wanted to answer this question, right? Like we all hear of VAS online, which is the Vanguard Australian Share ETF or managed fund. There's an equivalent managed fund and it invests in the top 300 Australian shares. Now, your super fund, I would imagine you can go into that and everyone look at the pre-made portfolios and the single sector funds And there might be an option that says Australian shares index. Mm. Now, theoretically, that's pretty much the same as VAS. Might not be managed by Vanguard, but they're tracking the same index. Now, on this VOO thing, that's an ETF in the States that goes, which is domiciled in the States and invests in the S&P 500. Uh, An equivalent here might be IVV. Uh, But, you know, Likewise, you might open the Superfund PDS, look at the investment options, and I don't know if you've seen it, Jess, but like I'd probably say that there might not be a just a US single sector option in most super funds, but realistically, even if you look at the uh, international share individual option, mm. you know the majority of that's probably like fifty percent, probably US anyway. So I don't know. I just think. You know, as I said at the start, like we get into the weeds of this stuff and we just don't want to overcook it to make it feel like we're doing something and getting an edge where if you just move to the high growth scheme or whatever it's called in the Australian Retirement Trust, well, hey, get on with your life. Could do the same thing. Totally. And if you're like, no, I have conviction that they are the ones that I want to be in, then there are some retail super funds that will actually let you pick exactly where your money is going. And so perhaps... I don't know whether ART do, but have a look at some of those. But to your point, like you've probably got pre-mixed options already in there. And if they are tracking an index, like you say, you wouldn't imagine they're going to be relatively expensive. And the headache and the cost of not only the creation of the self-managed super fund, but the maintenance and the reporting obligations of self-managed super funds, unless I'm missing a big chunk of the story, based on what we've got in here, certainly wouldn't be something that I would think is appropriate. Yeah, and I think, you know, self-managed super fund with stake, I think, let me just Google this. Um, I think they are doing kind of like a um, super fund in a box type thing. Yeah, enjoy self-managed super fund admin and investing for under 900 a year. I mean, like even if the fees were half that, I still don't think you need self-managed super fund. And ASIC came out with some pretty good guidelines around where they think from a balance perspective you need to be to have a self-managed super fund. And it's like quite a few hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's not necessarily Mm. something you should look at because you've reached 100K or something. So yeah, I think, what are you looking for? Are you looking for the autonomy of picking which fund you're in? Can you get that anywhere else? 
How set and forget can you make it? And are you really across what it means to own a self-managed super fund? Mm. Do you have any thoughts, Johnson? Now, look, I reckon too complicated. Uh, maybe when they're looking to set and forget, it probably means it's um, it's not for them. So mm. keep it simple. Mm. Hey, moving on, there's a question here from Rachel. Do you want to read that for John, Jess? Yeah. This one is from Rachel. Hi, everyone. I was hoping to pick your brains about a few buying things for your first home. I'm looking at a strata unit villa in Perth, WA, and we'll have a mortgage. So Rachel's got four questions. John, should I go one by one or should I give you all of them so you can do a bit of a consolidated answer? Let's go one by one, Jess. Great. Number one, upon settlement, is it standard to reimburse the seller for your share of the strata fees, land and water rates? Great question. Now, as far as I'm concerned and to my level of knowledge, which is limited, when you're buying a property of someone that has paid strata fees in advance, if it's if they've paid 12 months in advance or water rates or whatever it might be that's, um, that's part of that particular unit, you will need to reimburse that seller for the amount leading up to that 12-month period. So if you took over at the six-month mark, uh, you need to reimburse them the six months because they've paid 12 months in advance. Does that make sense, hopefully? Um, I would always check, obviously, the uh, body corporate, the the minute notes, talking to the conveyancer, um, talking to your team of people to make sure that the, the dollar figures are correct and the conveyancer would reconcile that uh, in the week leading up to settlement of that particular property. So the answer to that is it actually depends on what the current owner has done leading up to putting it for sale. Mm-hmm. I will say as well, like you won't actually get any surprises after the fact uh, when it's settling. Like I've just pulled up one of the last properties that I bought, like a disbursement schedule from One of the their lawyers. last properties. See that, Jess? One that's of it. the past properties. Small internal yeah. giggle at that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yes, that's right. I am the problem, of course. Now, it will actually have the disbursement and the breakdown. So it will say total loan amount approved, any grants, any other funds. And it'll be like, these are the total funds. And then it's the costs. So I've got professional costs for the borrower, postage and couriers, $20. Don't get me started on lawyers. You charge for like everything, just bloody, anyway, um, search fees, PEXA fees. And then there's, you know, just a full breakdown. So, yeah, it won't be a surprise if there are any uh, readjustments that need to be paid for any strata fees. And shout out to all the great real estate agents out there, but they're, they're not someone that you'd go to to confirm or deny this. You, you're going straight to your conveyancer and, and they're the one mm. that's going to tick that off. Mm. All right, should we move to question two? Yeah. Let's go for it. <laughs> Since strata titles have building insurance, does that cancel out the need to have your own building and contents insurance for your mortgage? We'll definitely be taking out contents. Mm. Do you need this? No brainer to have contents insurance any case. Uh, and, and obviously building insurance needs to be in place regardless of whether you're in a strata or, or not uh, for the banks to satisfy their, their lending conditions. So uh, generally strata costs or body corporate fees um, cover the insurance of the building in the event of any accidents, flood, whatever it might be. So you shouldn't have to double up on building insurance because it's why we're paying strata fees in the first place. That's just one component of that strata or body corporate fee for that annual period. Mm -hmm. Again, 
We're asking great questions. Let's continue to ask them of the conveyancer, read the strata reports, read the minutes, and, and even talk to existing owners within the building. How's your experience been? Uh, what have you been paying per year? How much is in the sinking fund? All these key questions get you a really good feel of the, of the uh, building that you're about to purchase into. Good one. Okay. Question three, a property I'm looking at is tenanted until December, 2023. So I wouldn't be able to move in once settlement is complete. An agent told me I wouldn't be liable for CGT if I move in within six months of settlement. Is that true? I think not. That's from Rachel. Hmm. If I was a real estate agent, I probably wouldn't be giving CGT advice. Um, Mm. But what I will say is that on the ATO website, There's actually a capital gains tax tool, if you want to call it that. And one of the questions in there is, did you occupy the dwelling as soon as practical after you acquired it? Now, the answer in this case would be, yes, I did. So if that's the case, then you've got a pretty good argument to not have to pay capital gains tax because you've moved into it and called it your main dwelling as soon as practical. So that is to get around people flipping properties or buying, trading or whatever properties, living in it for 10 minutes, at the, like to actually call it your home? Yeah, and it's still a bit of a grey area, which is this tool online is, is great, but there's no actual time frame that says you must live in it for X. Um, obviously, first homeowner concessions and that are, have got time periods on them. But yeah, for CGT, there's, it's still reasonably grey, but... That uh, that's my interpretation of it. If uh, if your intent and and you have moved in as soon as practical, then you should be in the clear. Mm. Should. Hmm. Okay. Last one from Rachel. A friend told me it can be worth going straight to the bank rather than using a broker, as you're likely to be loaned more as they don't have to pay the broker. Hmm. We get we get this a little bit, Glenn, don't we? Yeah. There's a lot of like myths out there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, I actually went to a, a conference in Sydney last week and there was a number of guest speakers and one of them was in fact a mortgage broker and we had a similar conversation around this. There are a number of online uh, facilities or online second, third tier lenders that have a, let's call it a cheap and nasty product. And there may be a reasonable interest rate that you can take advantage of in a honeymoon honeymoon period, Right. But generally speaking, when you're dealing with the, the major reputable banks, uh, you, you won't be getting any cheaper rate uh, than what you would going through a broker. And, and it's, the broker fees, the broker remuneration is irrelevant in that sense. Mm. I've never had a situation that I have helped a client with where they've got a mortgage broker and had disadvantages. Like the broker obviously is able to know what banks sort of Mm. rule sets are and which ones are more, you know, lenient towards, you know, small business owners or complex matters. I also think, you know, going to every bank and applying for pre-approval, et cetera, like I don't know where this has come from, but even just the thought of the admin on Mm. that, I'm like, who would want to do that? Not me. Yeah. Well, and people do want to save a dollar if they think they are going to be saving a dollar. So, 
they might have the time and the legwork to go and do that, but generally they're going to fall, not fall short, but fall even to what the broker's done for them. But as you said, it, it's, got to, it's got to suit the personal situation and a broker will look into your details left, right and centre to make sure that this particular product or products, maybe shortlisted to two or three, are going to work for you. But there are a lot of online banks that have low overheads and can offer some quite attractive honeymoon rates. And I think you've got to realise as well, everyone, when you see that amazing rate advertised online lender only and all that, sometimes, if not most of them, most of the time, they will require more equity. Like you'll need a lower LVR because in money land, it's like higher the risk, higher the rate. And if there's higher the risk, it means there's a high LVR. Uh, lower the risk, lower the rate. And that could be if someone has a property worth a million dollars, they've got 500000 debt and $500,000 equity, that is a 50-50 LVR and that's lower risk because there is less of a chance of someone defaulting on someone that's borrowing that much and more of a chance that if it does hit the fan, the bank has meat that they can recover from that property they've got a mortgage over. So, Yeah, that's a really good point. And, and to expand on that, you, you might be – Standing at a barbecue talking to someone, they say, I've got this rate with this lender, you should give them a go. Well, you're a doctor, I'm a teacher, you're on 200 grand, I'm on 70 grand, I'm going with a 10% deposit, they've gone in with a 30% deposit, like there's, mm. <laughs> there's no one size fits all, is there? Okay, this one is wild. Ella, hi all, looking for some advice. For context, I'm 26, working three days a week bringing in $1,800 a fortnight, minimal expenses, still living at home. Sounds pretty good to me. Mm-hmm. I have a Westpac credit card with a $10,000 limit. I use the credit card often. However, always pay off the balance before I accrue interest, which is good. But I feel like I can never get ahead. I usually spend most of my pay on my card, then transfer it off each fortnight. Having a credit card is good in the sense of I have money, I can dip into if an unexpected bill arrives or I can pay things off, but I'm not sure if anyone has any tips on managing a credit card better. <sighs> Who, I mean, Ella, thanks so much for contributing to the Facebook group. Um, these ones here, I like to turn up the funness because it's fun to have fun and all that. Um, so you're awesome, love you. But also what I would say to Ella before I'll ask Jess what she thinks How's your current system working for you? I'd probably say not great. So something has to change. Piss off the credit card and get on with your life. Jess. <laughs> I mean, do you need me to answer it? I feel like you just did quite a succinct answer in that. No, Ella, I think you already know that you are in such a privileged position because you earn a good amount of money for how many days a week you work. And my love, you live at home. Like life gets so tough when you have all these extra bills to pay, but you live at home and you need to capitalize on that. So the thing with credit cards, and I think the credit card companies have done such a great job of being like, but if you never pay interest, it doesn't matter whether you use a credit card or not. That's not true. The research shows that if you use a credit card just in general, statistically speaking, you are more likely to just spend on the credit card. So 
if you need a credit card for like that get out of jail situation, fine. Obviously in time, what we want though, is that you actually have a pot of money called an emergency fund or whatever you choose to call it. That is the replacement to the credit card. But I have found this a little bit and Glenn, you might feel the same. What people tend to do when they've been in the habit of using credit cards is they get into this really shitty cycle where they have to put all of their income onto the credit card to reset it. But then because they've put all the money onto the credit card, they have no choice but to use the credit card. Mm. So perhaps think about, and this is tricky to sort of navigate, you might be putting too much on the credit card initially because you're leaving yourself nothing to live off from a bank account. So I think perhaps what you need to do is figure out, okay, cool, over the next, what is it, fortnight is when you're getting paid. How much am I committing to live off and keep that in a bank account? And I don't know, pay yourself a weekly amount for fun money or whatever you need to do from a separation and an automation perspective so that you are having freedom within boundaries and not putting everything in your credit card. Otherwise, my dear, you're going to go round and round and round in circles and you're never going to be able to sort of fix the habit or build the those savings up for emergencies. So I think for a period of time, putting less on your credit card to enable you to use your cash means statistically speaking, you'll spend less and you'll get out of this sort of habit, which you're young. You don't want to rust this on as a habit that you have forever. And credit cards can be really dangerous. And so you don't want this to be something that gets worse and worse over time, because I'm promising you, if you don't get on top of it, it will. And the fact that, you know, statistically you will spend more will offset any cute little, oh, I got a, a, a Dyson hairdryer with points. It's like, no, you probably spent more to pay for that. Like, it's just... Yeah. The points, I mean, I confess that I am not someone who's fully across this, but I do know that like 10 years ago, the rewards on points with credit cards were apparently significantly better than what they are today. And so you need to weigh that up. And honestly, if you're spending more and it's causing you stress because you can't manage your money, is it really worth it? And then you need to decide what the answer to that is. Mm. And that's it. Like, who cares about earning? Because when you boil it down, like all the trouble that Ella's going through to have the credit card, to be sophisticated and do all that. And I just noticed literally while we were recording, I had a Facebook notification. She liked my comment on the post and I basically said, ditch the card, get the Glenn James spending plan and thank me in three months because you'll have money in the account and no chaos. Like Mm. seriously. And what you'll find is all the stuff that you go around and try and game and I'm sophisticated, I got a credit card. It's a zero, zero. Like you're doing all that for probably an extra $50 maybe of stuff per month, maybe? It's probably a security blanket. Like she talks about the unexpected bills. If she went back in the last three months and said, well, how many unexpected bills have arrived? There might be one or two. Uh, and as you said, Jess, have the emergency fund. You've got it there. Cut the card up and just uh, live normally. So I like to push back on some of the credit card zealots where they're like, oh, you've got to have a credit card for emergencies. Okay, so let's just walk that back. If you have cash in the bank, you've got money for emergencies. So that's number one. Number two, if it's a legitimate emergency in your life, wouldn't it be the worst time ever to go into debt? Maybe. Mm. Like it's mm. an emergency. We don't want to go into debt. And then people are like, what if I can't access my cash and all that? Well, number one, everything's same day, OSCO payments now. Number two, when was the last time you were ever stuck somewhere and needed $1,000? I dare say maybe never for most people. 
And I think this comes back to like just good financial hygiene, like good mm. cash flow management should be the backbone of your strategy. You need to have a system that's simple and easy and automated and repeatable, like take out the manual intervention, take out all of the stress of how much did I spend this month or where am I up to or how am I going to manage that? Because the more that you can actually instead use that time to figure out how could I you know, increase my income or how can I learn how to invest or do something that's going to build your wealth rather than spending mental load pushing money around, like you've got a lot of life to live. You live at home at the moment and things will no doubt become more complicated when you move out, if you ever move out. And so getting a good handle of foundation stuff now that works and creates ease is, in my opinion, a very, very important starting point. Mm. And most of the time, like, I, it's semantics, but realistically, there are never unexpected bills. And you might be like, what? How dare you say that? There are emergencies. Mm. But I would call bills something that's planned throughout the year. So it could be rego, like, my car rego happens the same day every year. Like that's never going to be an unexpected bill. Mm-hmm. Sure, I, I'm, I know I'm picking at the weeds at the comments and the, the language, but realistically um, you should be able to plan for most expenses throughout the year and my system will teach you and there's no cost to do that system, everyone. So just search the Glenn James spending plan. But Ella, what about you do the spending plan and then maybe in a couple of months what about you comment back on the post and if you want, maybe I'll give you a quick phone call and record um, our little discussion. You can just give us an update on, you know, what's happening because, you know, I really value that you are dancing with this now and you are brave enough to talk about it. Mm. You know, I just had a heap of fun being dramatic and all that, but I just don't want the Ella to be 36 still spinning around 10 years later in this same circle. So, yeah, this is awesome. Good luck, Ella. We'll take a break and we'll be back right after this. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay. 
Okay, welcome back. This is the community section of the week where we ask the Facebook group insightful questions, dumb questions, random questions. You comment, we read them. And we can't do this without Sky Wealth. We care about our financial future, our financial foundations, and we care about protecting what matters most, and that is our money. Just money? Yeah, whatever. We're going with it. You can head to sky.com.au forward slash MMM to book in with the team and have a complimentary little 15-minute discussion, and they'll just walk you through the process of what's involved. There's a link in the show notes. All right, John, we asked everyone, what's one thing you'd wish you'd done sooner? Patrick, I've learned not to live with regret, but one thing I wish I'd done sooner was take my finances seriously. My 20s and even early 30s were littered with poor financial decisions as my mindset was always, I'll deal with it later. I'll go back and slap my 25-year-old self and tell him to wake up. Ha ha. Very good, Patrick. Okay, we've got Finn who says, no slash get my worth. Love that. Uh, Hallie started investing. That's Mm. such a common one. Ashley said, I wish I bought a house back in 1997 when I was a fetus. <laughs> yeah, why didn't you do that, you silly Billy? Rage says, travelled the world, lived in different countries when I had a chance, realised before 35 is about enjoying life. Afterwards, you can set yourself up better, not give a shite about others' opinion, stop trying to fit in, stop trying to keep up, relying on other people, live my dreams brave enough to realise anything's possible, started my own business, invested in a life coach, bought land to live in a tiny home, had more legal knowledge, born into a financially knowledgeable family. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's all good. Don't live too much in regret, Rach. Yeah, but... <laughs> don't, uh, don't wake up regretting anything. Yeah. Some good stuff in there though. Yeah. I mean, obviously, like choosing which family you're born into is uh, probably one thing that you don't need to try to fix or solve, you can just learn Mm. from. But I think particularly for women, like we do spend a heck of a lot of time and a heck of a lot of money trying to fit in and trying to do what we're told is expected and play it safe and sort of stay small sometimes. And so, you know, I think a lot of women would go back and shake themselves and be like, babe, do whatever you feel is inside of you and take more risks and like be boss and step up, don't step off. And so I think well done, Rach. And I hope you are now doing all this cool stuff. Mm, Yeah, that's cool. Sarah said she wished she'd left a workplace that she hated. So that's one. Like if you're listening to this today and you don't love your workplace, and this is the whole thing, that's right. You can love your career, you can love your job, but you might not like your employer. Well, let's put some wheels in place to get out of there because life is way too short to put up with stuff that we don't like over the medium to long term. And- Mm. You know, I I say that because it's not as if I hate this place, get stuff, see ya, I'm out. I think it is more like let's put a plan and get the wheels in motion to to make a change because, you know, we can't just quit up right away and, um, yeah. Ray said, you'll achieve nothing if your health is compromised. Ensure you get an annual checkup with your GP with the whole battery of tests, including blood work. That sounds American, blood work, but whatever. It could save your life. Yes, I'm shouting because it's all in caps. At everyone to get it done uh, from my own experience. Yeah. When was the last time you guys had a blood test? A full blood test, like an MBA 20 and all of the things. Can I tell you a funny story? Yeah. So I started my, um, I co-founded a business in 2017 and I worked in corporate. And 
before I started the business, I went to the doctor and asked them to do this. And the doctors, I'm like, I want every test. And she's like, why? And I was like, because I don't want to start a small business and then find out that there's something seriously wrong with my health. But when I don't have sick leave or, you know, any cushy income coming in, she thought I was completely mad, but goodness me, I'm glad I did it. I didn't have anything no. wrong, but it just gave me a lot of reassurance. Weird, but true. Yeah, no, that's good. Hmm. So when was the last time you had routine and it's just more the question, like when did you last time go to a GP and was like, hey, do I need to do any age-based checkups or anything like that? I don't know. I went on. Uh, I went overseas for a few months last year in May. So I think before I went, I went and had a checkup. But I think I only checked up like are all my vaccinations and stuff up to date. Mm. Hey, Ray, I think you've given me a good kick up the ass. I think it's time mm. for me to go and do some full bloods. John, when did you last get mm. jabbed? I, I- I get mine every 12 months just for, I suppose, the level of training I'm doing and, um, and as you said, age-based. We're all getting older here, so... Has he, um, has, he said, um, <laughs> has he said this won't hurt a bit yet? <laughs> <laughs> no, hasn't gone there yet, thankfully. So I must still be young, Glenn. Yeah, yeah. No, um, and I, I think that's oh, only um, six months ago... I went to the doctor and he said, get this in three months, then come back when my scripts are due. So yeah, last three months or so. In fact, I do remember because the pathology that I went to, um, it was the most horrendous customer experience of my life. And at the end of the appointment, I got an email like, thanks for coming in today. How would you rate us? I'm like, oh, I'm so glad you asked. And I gave them an honest review. And the local regional uh, lady actually emailed me and said, oh, can you give me some more feedback? And I'm like, mm. yeah, with two staff working there and only three other people in the waiting room, that shouldn't have taken me 45 minutes. They just mm. didn't care and it was horrendous and they weren't actually busy and they didn't even acknowledge that. It was just horrendous. But all that to say, get your blood test. Yes. And I'm going to say a thank you to Ray because I'm now, this was totally not on my hit list and I'm Mm. going to add this on. And ladies, we have other things that we need to get regularly checked up on. And so I think this is a good reminder that we might need to check and see Mm. when we're due for all of those things. And also give blood everyone. I got a call the other night and I usually don't answer calls after hours. Well, sometimes do you ever like, I'm in a mood, I'll have a fun with scammers and just answer Mm. and talk to them. Yeah. Never. Anyway, I got the phone call. Hey, Glenn, it's so-and-so from Red Cross. We need your blood type. Can you come in? I'm like, yeah, sweet. Uh, I'm like, book me in tomorrow. I'll come down. Giddy up. So I went down there and I couldn't give blood because of some new medication. Was that going to be your first time? No, I'd, I'd done it before, yeah, because yeah. they knew that I was A positive. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, couldn't actually give blood, unfortunately, but... I can use that experience to remind everyone else to give blood. Absolutely. Should be doing it. All right. We need to move on. Uh, Tuesday, bit of housekeeping. Tuesday, the 14th of November at 7 p.m. Join uh, the sponsor of our community segment, Sky Wealth. They're doing another workshop following a a deep dive insurance episode. podcast episode I did a you know a little while back with Phil and they're just talking all about 101 insurance basics uh, there's going to be a claim story they're going to have someone on there who's had actually some claims and ask questions so you know if you are new to the this world and the money world and you do want to get uh, your 
life and income insurance sorted. We just like to get as much information as possible and go to trusted people. And the team at Sky is someone that I personally trust. And they've looked after so many of you who listen and this is an ecosystem. So they look after us, we promote them. And the advantage is you, the listener, uh, get looked after. So there you go. We'll put a link in the show notes, uh, Tuesday, the 14th of November next month. All right. That's probably enough for housekeeping today. Let's discuss boundaries at work. A couple of weeks ago, I put a reel up on Instagram because someone on LinkedIn made a tongue-in-cheek comment that said, good morning to everyone except those who send emails to their team or something on a weekend. And I was in a bit of a provocative mood and I was like, hey, if it's my business and my email domain, I'll send an email whenever the hell I want. And yes, I know I can schedule send. Um, Because someone else's boundary should not be my admin to administer-ish. So I know you saw the real Jess and you've got Mm -hmm. a couple of things to say. Let's talk about this boundaries at work thing. Like, what do you think about it? Look, I have, I run and have run small businesses. And I think, you know, we as business owners, very rarely do we actually switch off. And so I can come up with an idea or have something that I just want to make sure uh, I don't forget. And sometimes that's like just getting it out of my head and making sure that it gets to where it needs to go in that moment so that it doesn't sit on the never empty to-do list uh, happens. I think though, it's really important that if you're going to do that and set a culture where that is sort of normal, that you are very clear with your team. And I'm very clear with my team. Hey, you get an email from me on a weekend or an early morning or a late night thing, like set it up so that you don't get notifications outside of business hours or that you don't get notifications, like do whatever you need to do. Do not expect that I think you need to reply to it. Cause I think that's the implication. Like we all see emails and we just assume that the immediate thing we need to do, it's like a war of like, how quickly can we respond? And I don't think that's right. So I think as long as you're managing expectations that like, I don't expect you to read this until business hours, you don't need to do anything with this until you're back in the office. That's fine. Obviously where your boss is emailing you and wanting a reply, that's a bit crap. And I think those bosses are out there. And so as long as you, as the leader explain that that's not who we are and that's not the culture that we're setting, I don't see any problem with it, but I also do it. So I don't know if I'm biased. What do you think, Johnny? Yeah, I had this conversation with my staff oh, a couple of months ago, I suppose. Um, right. It, it dawned upon me that I did it occasionally. Uh, I sent a from probably the similar point from from you, Jess, is, is like, okay, I'm just getting this out of my head because otherwise the weekend goes and I forget about it that I could write it down in my notes section or put it in my own calendar invite and whatever else. Um, but I did say to them first thing Monday morning, hey, look, um, I sent you an email on the weekend. Um, I, I didn't expect you to respond to it and mm. I could schedule it and whatever, but I'm just saying if I do send you out of hours emails, I don't expect the response, turn it off, ignore it, whatever, um, but it's just just me shed, um, getting it off my out of my chest, basically. Yeah, and I, I do think it is more of an overarching cultural thing. Like, mm. you know, if it wasn't clear to my team, hopefully they're listening to this now. Like, I don't expect anyone to reply to an email or a Slack message after hours. It's as simple as that. And and then basically what that means is they can go, that's sweet, 
I know that my boundaries can be maintained because someone in the Instagram comments, they actually said they didn't like um, someone like scheduling a heap of stuff and then schedule 901 Monday morning Mm. because they said sometimes I like to just jump on Sunday night, prepare my week, see what I'm going to... So it's all circumstantial and I think it just comes back to what culture are you in and do you like it and do you agree with it? And we live in such a flexible world now where like, you know, I can be really on, I sort of have like two modes. I can get up super early and I can be really productive very first thing in the morning. And I also find that around like 7 p.m. I get some sort of weird second wind sometimes Mm. and I can be super proactive and, you know, get stuff done over a couple of hours. And if that's the same for your staff, like if they work when works well for them and their schedule in their brain, like we also just need to set an expectation that it's okay for them to send emails as long as they expect the same thing. So look, I'm guilty, keen for your thoughts because mm. I agree with Glenn. Okay, so if, if it's not staff and not workplace, um, Amy and I have this conversation at home about she's like, okay, normal hours, that's when you contact people, like maybe close friends aside, but... Mm. Glenn, you used to sleep in. Now you're an early bird. Um, I would never have rang you at 7 a.m. I probably still wouldn't, but maybe 8 o'clock might be okay. What What do you do for maybe not not close friends but just someone that's not in your uh, work environment? I think, yeah, some common courtesies like business hours. I mean, I've got no problem calling someone at 6 p.m. if it's daylight savings. Um, <laughs> when it's still light because, you know, people have more chance that it's going to still be out. Um, But at the end of the day, like if someone, I wake up to missed calls all the time at like 8.30am and 9am. Like if I can't answer it, I won't answer it. Just text someone, hey, I know it's late or it's after hours or it's early. If you happen to be free now, can we chat? Mm. But yeah, I, I don't know. I just think the whole boundaries thing, it is more around like what do you want in your life? So here's a like the other side of it. If you worked at a place and they're like, you need to be available for emails 24-7 or whatever, right? You could be like, you know what? Nah, get stuffed, not doing it. Or if they pay you really well, it's part of the deal. You knew we're going into it. This is the deal and you can thrive with it, all that. It's whatever. Because I think it's just that expectation alignment, right? Mm. But if you don't like it, you don't have to agree to it. I'm talking about like a if you're joining a team and you're like, oh, what's the culture like here? And then like someone passes you a bit of paper with like a run written on it or something like that. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. Like it's the same thing. Like honestly, if it comes down to as well, like if your boss has an expectation that you've got work emails on your phone that can be accessed after hours or out of the office or whatever, they need to furnish you with a phone, a work phone, and then you just leave it at home. Mm. I just think it's boundary setting. I think it's setting expectations. I think it's about understanding like that everyone's workday is different. Some people split it because they've got kids or whatever. And just like the expectation that if you get an email, you don't have to read it straight away. And I think that we have a personal responsibility to adhere to that and set our own boundaries because I'm guilty of it. I see emails come through when I'm cooking dinner or whatever, and Mm. I have to get better at being like, okay, I will... I will deal with that tomorrow or I'll deal with that at another time because you can easily get railroaded mm. because it it's a barrage and it never stops. So I also think as the person who is an instigator of this, we all need to get better at realising that emails is not requiring an instant reply always. 
Yeah, and it's probably this. It's probably more of a Slack message. We don't heaps use emails anyway, and you know, and I like honestly, if there was a marketing agency that emailed me um, about a campaign or whatever, and I didn't get to it till Saturday afternoon, I don't care. I'm clicking send, done. Like you've emailed me, I've got back to you. Like, let's not get too precious. I think the discussion is more around team and boundary setting. Yeah, mm. Mm. expectations. Yes. Um, let's answer one more. Can you give us ten minutes, John? Yeah. And thanks everyone for being a little bit patient with us. It's the first time the three of us have recorded together, so we're like a thruffle for the first time we've together. All right. So, uh, <laughs> Evany said. Hi friends, long time listener, first time poster. I'm 28 and I feel like I'm at a bit of a crossroads with my life. I want to buy my first property with the intention that I'll still be able to enjoy social events and travel. I've been burnt with housemates in the past and heading into my 30s, I don't really want a housemate. Initially, I thought I could borrow around four to 500 on my income. However, considering interest rates, cost of living, insurances, etc. Uh, realistically, to live the lifestyle I want, I think I can only afford three to three ninety. He will tell me there's no point buying a three hundred thousand dollar two times one apartment as the capital gains will be next to nothing. There's a whole comment there. Question: Do I sacrifice having a social life slash traveling to have a better investment in the long run, or do I sacrifice capital gains to have my own place and the lifestyle I want? My current mood is. F star star star. Hmm, don't know what that is. And <laughs> use my current deposit to go travel and move to a different country. I mean, there's lots in there that I want to comment on. So I'll go to John and then maybe mm. Jess and I can mop up anything that was missed. Yeah. So Ebony, I think we need to strip it right back for a start and think, well, what's our priority? What do we actually want out of this? And, and what's most important to us, what are our values and what are our interests in life. Like, and, and I'll give you an example of this. I think we've got to be thinking 10 years in advance. So where do I want to be? What do I want to be doing in 10 years' time and where do I potentially want to be living? Is it lifestyle that's my priority um, or am I focusing on wealth creation? Um, the, the comment about no point buying a two-by-one uh, apartment, capital gains will be next to nothing. History says, yes, houses and land perform better. Um, but if your real focus is to create wealth, then yeah, you might look to buy something at 380000 that does have some land associated to it and go and rent vest. But if you don't enjoy renting, then we're not going down that path either. So we've got to understand, um, are we going to take an approach of buying real estate that we live in or are we going to rent where we want to live and enjoy that lifestyle and walk to the to our shops and jump on the train and, and be close to work and friends or are we just purely focused on wealth? But we've got to understand what's what do we need in five to ten years' time and, and every second clarity call that I do with Sydney siders is we're having this exact conversation. So what's important to you because there's no one size fits all here. Uh, but like you mentioned, sacrificing social life and travelling, that might be your highest priority. So that's what you're putting your emphasis on now. We don't want to look back in 10 years and have deep regret because we went and bought something that we thought was going to perform better for growth only to be living in an area that we don't want to live in. So yeah, round all that out as you as you may, Ebony. But uh, look, 
good thing is uh, you've got 400k to spend or close to it, so you're in a lot better position than a lot of others. Mm. Um, Ebony, I love that you've given a lot of thought to whether you could live with people or not, because I think when you're in a situation where you're trying to buy a property, sometimes you're unrealistic about what you could actually practically cope with. And you're like, yeah, we could have 15 flatmates living in a tiny two bedroom apartment. Then I'd be able to afford the mortgage. You know, we get really unrealistic expectations. So the fact that you know that that's not ideal and therefore you need to pull back, I think is a very smart thing. I live alone and I totally totally get you. I get you. I feel you. I hear you. Um, And so making sure that you're not over committing yourself and putting yourself in a situation where you have to do something that's not going to feel good is it's better to think about that ahead of time. So I want to say a well done to you on that front. I also think if the reason that you're buying a place is to have long-term financial security for you, then, you know, John's obviously giving you some great points to think about, but is, is the point to be Uh, looking for just growth? Or is it also to be able to live in a place that you own, that you've got some security around, that you can paint the walls and do whatever you like? And if so, then I think that that's probably a different lens that what you look at comparing that to whether you're buying an investment property. I did some very small numbers. Mm. For example, if you bought at 300,000, let's assume you got a 20% deposit. I'm also assuming you're a first home buyer, so no stamp duty. So let's say you've got a $240,000 loan on about 5.87% for 30 years, you're looking at about $327 a week just on the mortgage. That's principal and interest. It obviously doesn't factor in all the other costs. So I think there does become a really interesting conversation around, and I don't know what market you're in, but, you know, renting versus owning and the long-term sort of wealth outcomes for you to think about. So I think it's good that you're thinking about all of the things that are important to you. And to John's point, what are your values? And that'll help guide you. Can you, like, this sounds really dumb. I'm just looking live while we do it on, I'm, I'm just on domain. I'm just searching up to $350,000 apartment. Um, I'll just search. You're not on the northern beaches or the eastern Melbourne. suburbs of uh, yeah. Sydney. Melbourne. Are you, are you in Sydney? I don't know if you're in I Sydney. Know. I don't know. I'm just searching. Further Melbourne. out, 30. 30, 35K out. Oh, okay. So here we go. Map view. I'm just looking You're in Melbourne. at Melbourne. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I can get a 211 apartment in Carlton for 345. Yeah. Carlton's so, like in the city, right? Yeah. Close to city. Be in a bigger complex. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. so John, is it a bigger complex because there's a bit more scale or something like that or... Yeah, they're just, just they're internally just smaller because, and just work worth less because they have essentially less land value associated to them because yeah. there's 80 in there um, mm. and, and Carlton's got a lot of that. And, uh, yeah, so it, it's a security thing for a lot of people, isn't it? But, um, yeah, we're, mm. you've got to understand where do you, where do you want to live? Like, like it's just in, in Brisbane you can be right – front and centre into the city as well. So there's there's plenty of options there, but um, is how long is that going to serve you for? Uh, and one thing that Ebony hasn't mentioned, which she's 28, uh, is she going to have kids? So if I buy a, a one-bedroom apartment um, and I appreciate having security to live in my own home, how long until I have to move out of that because I'm starting a family? Um, and then what's how are we going to pivot from there? Are we going to sell that 
And then that's when we have to factor in the growth to, to upgrade to a two-bed or a three-bed or, yeah, there's so many variables in all of this, but that's why it's good to think five, ten years in advance. And, John, more and more of us women are not having babies till later in life. So are you mm. saying it's better to, like, to invest in something, like stretch yourself a bit f- more earlier on so that there's sort of that wiggle room? Because I have a different opinion, so I'd be keen for yours. When you say stretch yourself, you mean go to a higher price point or stretch yourself as in go to a suburb that you're not comfortable with for search of growth? Oh, so stretch yourself potentially because maybe at the moment you can only, I mean, not in this example, it's a two by one, but let's say stretch yourself because you're like, okay, maybe I will over the next 10 years meet someone and settle down and have a kid. Should we factor that in? Whereas I would say to Ebony, like if you're single, based on where you're at now, like I'm keen, would you, for your thoughts, would you factor that in? having enough space for a child in the place that you're buying, if you're buying your first place? Not necessarily um, space for a child in the place you're in, but looking at if you're wanting to live in a certain area and and there's a probability that you're going to live in a bigger uh, dwelling, how are we going to get ourselves into that position financially? And that means buying well from a growth point of view if that's the focus. Hmm. On So I don't the, the way I see this, kind of back to what Jess said, like you love living um, by yourself. So you don't want a house that you're being burnt. Mm. That's awesome. So I'm probably doing my numbers based on can I rent somewhere where I want to live, two-bedroom apartment, rent that done, and then just buy something on the side as an investment in its own right because the problem – that we get out here and I think the problem uh, that Ebony's alluded to, she's mentioned capital gains tax twice, Mm. which is not a bad thing, but the driving priority to buy a home to live in is security, Mm. fixed costs, quote unquote, paint the wall, like like you you are consuming where you live. And the moment you try and have your cake and eat it too by getting something that's the perfect investment long-term, the moment you start to, I need this to be the best decision for investment, for living, I'm single, or I only like living alone, I think based on what we've got here, and even how John alluded to these considerations, like if you if you do like the area, and you know, a friend of mine, for example, she's uh, single, she wants to buy an apartment. On the stretch thing, and she doesn't mind living with a flatmate, right? I said to her, because her flatmate will rent off her because they're both renting at the moment. I actually said to her, I'm like, my unsolicited advice to you would be try and stretch yourself to buy a three-bedroom townhouse rather than a two-bedroom apartment or at the very minimum, a three-bedroom apartment because you both said you work from home. Can one room be the office or can you have one tenant in? And then if you move out, you've got an apartment near town. Can you put three students in there? I just think if you are trying to um, cover all bases, I think you should try and stretch yourself if you can, not just buy a one-bedroom apartment. Okay. So just take our three different answers and go and do with them what you will, Ebony. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but then... 
What about this for like another one? Her current mood is just like, F this. I want to travel and move to a different country. I mean, I'll take the move to a different country as a tongue-in-cheek because there's an upside-down smiley. What about Ebony? Don't blow your house deposit, but can you just book a one-month overseas Mm. and just get out of here and just... Yeah. I don't know. I, I just honestly think me reading this, Ebony probably is better suited to renting somewhere that she wants to live and if she's interested in property, buying an investment property somewhere else. Yeah, there's definitely a focus for wealth because she talks about the capital gains aspect. Yeah. Um, doesn't like living with anyone, live in a one bed. That's fantastic. Box ticked. The only missing piece is maybe whether she wants security for her own self. So, mm. yeah. Good question. It's a very familiar topic, this one. Mm. The squeeze of property prices in Sydney and Melbourne in particular. Yeah. If we take it, you know, the other side of the coin, Trisha asked a question uh, and a shout out to everyone who is over 50 who listens to the show. I trust you've listened to the Retire Right podcast, which is a dedicated podcast for those who are over 50 years old. May I ask this wonderful knowledge group where I can learn about the pros and cons of buying into an over 55 lifestyle village? Now, Kara actually made a good comment. Do you want to maybe read this comment, John, and then speak to some of this stuff? And then, Jess, you've had some anecdotal experience too. Hmm. So, Kara says, hi, Trisha. Each place is different, so make sure you inquire. However, my auntie, uncle are in one and some of their comments. There's an age difference between them with my auntie being younger. She found there are a lot of older people, 60 to 80. So, ask about median age of occupants if that's something that matters to you. You typically don't own the land, only the dwelling. When you sell, you're restricted by selling back through the village. Also, think through your strategy about what you're wanting for your asset. Is this a lifestyle or financial decision? Are you wanting growth in the property, etc.? Make sure you fully understand any ongoing fees as part of your contract. Pros, there's heaps of activities and facilities, always heaps to do. The bar, there is cheap drinks, haha. You usually get corporate water and electricity rates, low maintenance. That's just their experience, but definitely reach out to a few and research. So quickly, before I go to Jess, um, yeah, Trisha raised some really good points. And again, it's lifestyle versus financial, isn't it? What age are we? What do we enjoy? What what do we want most of? Um, are we 55? Are we 75? Very different lifestyle requirements. So we need to factor those in. But in my experience with um, friends and family in these type of environments, financially not the best outcome. Um, we, we spoke, Trisha spoke about owning, not owning the land, absolutely true, having selling requirements, taking part of the, C, um, the, the growth, the capital gains. Yeah, rarely do we come out of it in front financially, but it's a secure, safe place to spend the, the last few years of your life, hopefully longer than a few, but uh, take into account what you want uh, right now, but also... Um, yeah, in the next few years. Jess? Mm, agree. So annoyingly, this happened to my family. So it is in New Zealand, but I'm going to hazard a guess that it's probably a similar situation here. So my grandmother basically never dealt with money stuff. My grandfather died. The house was too big. So she decided to put herself in one of these little communities for all of the reasons that Cara sort of said are good. 
And so she signed the contract with no one reviewing it and just went on with her merry way. And I was there about this time last year and there was a problem with her bathroom. And so I said, let me see the contract. Let me see what you signed about 15 years ago, however long she's been there. And I was horrified because of all the points that you just said. So she has to sell it back to that company, but she sells it for the amount that she purchased it for. No more. So she purchased it for goodness knows how much, you know, 15 years ago. And that is the exact price that she has to, and I could not believe what I was reading. So there's no appreciation. There's no, you know, um, consideration for what the growth, yeah, for what the growth has done in that market or the fact that the value of a dollar has gone down significantly in the last however many years. And she, of course, had no understanding of what, that meant. Uh, And so I think from a legacy perspective, you know, if this is your nest egg and that is something that you're signing up for, but you've also got it in your mind that your children or your grandchildren are going to do something with that money when you're no longer here, then you just need to understand or make them aware that it's probably not going to be what they think it is. Because my Nana's been there for years and years and goodness knows how long she's going to be there for. It's Mm -hmm. not really about that. It was just more, I was just more frustrated because I felt like they they got someone who was vulnerable to sign something that they didn't really understand. It's a smokes and mirrors thing. And, you know, if you're about to sign something, like you're all excited, hey, the good thing is you won't lose any money because, you know, when you leave, (laughs) we'll give you the money back that you put into it. That sounds awesome. And it's exclusive. Like it's actually really where she is. Like they they have a huge long wait list. And so they're like, you need to decide right now because otherwise we're going to hang up on you and we're going to call someone else because we've got 30 people waiting for this place. So they also create this scarcity, like you have to sign mm. immediately situation. Now, and the, and the sorry, Glenn, the, the parent, the, sorry, the kids and the grandkids in this situation that are putting grandma, grandpa or mum or dad into these situations, like this is fantastic on one side because we maybe haven't got the facilities to look after them. We've got to go to work and, and live our life as well. So they're looked after from a lifestyle point of view and they've got people on hand to attend to their needs, right? But financially, it's a disaster for any inheritance. So that that's a, we're pulled both ways, aren't we? So which one's more important to us? Mm. And, and that's the thing, like you've got to know these places are businesses that are for profit for the developer, the underlying company or whoever the organization is, right? Now, the thing is, sure, if you think I want to play tennis every day, there's a pool, um, they've got all these corporate rates for electricity, they've got cheap drinks and all that, you've just got to know nothing ever, ever is free and whether they get the money up front from you or when they resell it once you move on and make 400 grand, Everything's making money. And to be honest, for me personally, the money thing isn't necessarily the issue. It's potentially the other people that are going to be there living in your pocket. And I don't know, like, you better be like, Del Boca Vista. Um, you could be like, um, <laughs> shout out to for those who know. Um, but, like, but sometimes that's be, a positive, right? That's right. And that's the personality play. I mean, mm. From my anecdotal experience in neighbours over the years, as someone gets really older and they are less active in doing work or community events or whatever, 
the minor non-event things in their life becomes the priority. Like you didn't put the bin in the right place and we're going to have a meeting about the bins. Like what is it with older people in bins? Like who cares? Like mm. I've got a job. Like I sorry, I didn't tie the plastic up when I put it. Like it's just so you've got to just be aware and, you know, I've been to my strata meeting at one of the places that I own and this is like, oh, my gosh, all you people need to get a freaking life. Who cares? Like, so there can be storms in teacups mm. in these things. And, do, is it just me or, like, when you talk about the question around the over 50s lifestyle village, mm. I was like, goodness me, there would be many people who would probably agree with me, like, 50's not that old to be no. looking at a lifestyle village. I'm like, <laughs> no, where do you 50's the new 40. Like, what are you doing? Why are you wanting? Anyway, I, that's just a comment as I'm approaching, you know, significant milestones in my life. I'm like, good Lord, I'm not ready for that at 50. Yeah. What? Yeah, I, I think, anyway. honestly, some of these lifestyle villages, I, I like, I'm looking at a photo here. I just Googled, like, a, a website. There is a group of these people, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. There would not be anyone under 60 in the photo. So I think a lot of these are like potentially over 60s. Mm. Um, yeah, but you're right. Just like freaking 65 isn't old anymore. Like yeah, I'm I'll about ask- to interview someone who started a business in their 60s and revving up like for the Retire Right podcast. Like we're all living longer and are more healthy and sure if you want a turn and this comes back to like if you want to do heaps of travel around the world and you just want a base camp that's secure like do this I'd probably even say I'd be more in favor of buying an apartment like my parents just did they bought a brand new apartment in off no it's just south of Brisbane it's turnkey if they want to go lock the door out of there like that's a better solution but they don't give a crap about needing the common room with the – actually, I think Dad said they've got a billiard table there. But anyway, all that to say, um, you'll take a bath financially with these situations and you just got to know that. Nothing's free and you rent the land only and it's just, yeah. Yeah. Do with it as you will. Well, we should go. Any uh, final comments on anything we've discussed today? Good luck, Ella. Yeah. So excited. I think Ella, you can change you can totally change this and turn it around and you can use it as like a really great opportunity to springboard into amazing healthy financial habits. And I think while you live at home, this is the perfect time to do so. I am so excited, Glenn. I hope you do have a chat with her in a few months. I need to know. I'm like mm. I'm spiritually and emotionally invested, Ella, in you getting off the credit card rat race. I need to know and good luck. John, any final thoughts about anything we've touched on? No, some good questions today. Good uh, diverse questions as well. So, yeah, it's good stuff. Mm. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just say to everyone, thank you while, um, you know, the three of us are learning to dance together. Is that a better way to put it, Jess? Mm. Um, you know, we're a, a newly formed thruple right now and um, <laughs> it might not always be the three of us. It might be just one or two. But, um, yeah, as you know, everyone, I wanted to – potentially bring in another little podcaster to have a chat with us. So yeah, my final comments are, I want to do a clarity call with Ebony. So Ebony, if you hear this, reply to your post. You're a long time listener. You get me, you get it. Reply to that and say, hey, Glenn, let's do it. Let's jump on and record a session and let's chat this out. 
I'm invested in Ebony and Jess is invested in Ella. And I'm getting a blood test. Yes, and everyone get a blood test. And give blood. And give blood. Jeez. All right, friends, uh, you can find Jess Brady on Instagram at... Jess Brady underscore financial advice. Ooh. And you can find Pidge on Instagram at... John Pigeon, I think it is. Yeah, probably uh, <laughs> Probably head to my website, <laughs> solvearwealth.com.au. Love it. All right, friends, see you next week. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports a variety of charities, and we encourage you to consider giving as part of your overall financial strategy. If you would like some giving options, or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to mymillennial.money forward slash charities for more info. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.